Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in week number five of this series called Impact. I want to talk about names. Uh, the names that we're given, you know, I heard somebody say one time, nothing sounds as sweet to someone as the sound of their own name. That's why I, I, I used to be much better, I feel like I used to be much better with names. As our church got bigger, it got harder for me to remember everyone's name. It's still a struggle for me. Um, but we love to hear our name, and our names are important to us, and some of you have probably done some research, and you know what your name means. You probably know where you got your name. I was with my, my mom and dad on, for uh, leading up to last night. We came home last night, and my dad can't do a whole lot, so he sits in his chair, and he watches television a lot, and he has discovered a channel on his television that shows nothing but black and white westerns. My poor mother. My poor mother. I just bless her heart. She just sits there and he's, you know, it's loud and just bless her heart. So we were watching the westerns the other day and Brett Maverick came on and mom said, there's your namesake right there. Uh, I'm named after Brett Maverick. Spelled differently. I didn't realize that till the other day. He only spelled it with one T. I said, how did I get two T's? She said, I just liked it better. Said, well, all right then. Your mom, you get to decide. Um, when when we were naming our kids, our firstborn uh, was named Bennett. We named him Bennett, and we got that off of the movie credits. We were watching a movie, and you know they scroll the names, and I saw Bennett at the end of somebody's name, and I'm like, man, that sounds strong. That just sounds like a good strong name for a strapping young lad. Let's name him Bennett. And so uh, that's how he got his name. And in talking to him, he and his wife are not expecting yet. And right now we're happy about that. Uh, but I've been told that if the day ever comes that they have a son, he's going to name his son Cullen because he's watched some movie somewhere. And, and the guy, the lead character, his name was Cullen. And I guess he was quite the character. And Bennett was like, I want my kid to be named Cullen. I'm like, okay, uh, whatever. So we get our names from different places. We spell them. I have people walking out telling me, you know, they, there was a nurse that walked out and she said, you wouldn't believe some of the names I see. And she gave me her favorite, and I'm not going to say it to you because it might be your name. I'm just not doing that. But, I, I mean, I couldn't believe somebody would name their kid that, honestly. Um, we're talking about a guy today named Onesimus. Onesimus. Now, just be honest with me. When I say Onesimus, do you have any idea who I'm talking about? If you don't know, raise your hand. If you've never heard of Onesimus, raise your hand. Okay, look at this. Look at this. I, I, I don't want you to feel bad. I've talked to more seasoned Christians this week about what I was going to talk about, and I've, I've told them who I was talking about, and they're like, who? What? I mean, what? What? Who is that? I mean, people that have gone to church their whole life are unfamiliar with the story that I'm going to share with you today. This is really a, a pretty cool a pretty cool story, and at the end, it's got kind of a surprise ending, so I'm, I'm excited about what we're going to study today. This whole series, Impact, comes from Colossians 4, where Paul is writing this section of Scripture, and he mentions like 11 people. He mentions these 11 people, and uh, he, he just kind of gives them like a shout-out, like, hey, so-and-so says hi, and this one's done this for me, and he's irreplaceable, and you know, this woman has done this for the church, and we're so thankful. And so this series, Impact, we have taken six of those characters, and we've kind of drilled down on them to kind of see what we can learn to help us make an impact on the world in which we live. And so we're going to try to understand the story today of Onesimus. And we start by reading in Colossians where 
Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. Tychicus is the one we talked about in week one. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So that's Tychicus' job. But then you come to this in verse 9. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So the question is, what is happening here? Well, uh, we believe that Paul is in Rome and uh, he is writing to this church in Colossae, and that's where Tychicus and Onesimus are going to be taking this letter to in the church in Colossae. And when he says, I'm sending Tychicus to you, it's believed that Tychicus is carrying the letter. Okay? And then he comes behind that and he, re- he references Onesimus and says, Onesimus is one of you. They, they believe that Onesimus probably was from Colossae to begin with. Okay? So he's been in Rome, but now he's being sent back to Colossae. Um, I mentioned 11 people that Paul mentions in Colossians 4. Some of those people that you see in that section of Scripture are fairly obscure. Um, For instance, Nympha is one of the names that comes up. We really got just one line from Nympha, and we we built a whole sermon around that. Um, But we really only get one, one little sentence in Scripture. But you learn a lot about Nympha in that one passage of Scripture. Um, Tychicus, for instance, is the one we started the series with, and Tychicus shows up in five different books of the Bible. Onesimus has an entire book of the Bible devoted to the telling of his story. Now, when I say that, you think to yourself, if you've been going to church your whole life, you're like, Brett, I know there's not a book in the Bible called Onesimus. I know that, right? Like, I've looked all over, there's no book called Onesimus. Um, now, so if you grew up in church, um, Right about now, you're kind of doing a mental inventory, and you're going through the books of the Bible, and you're like, wait a minute, Brett, I mean, if there's not an Onesimus, where do we find this story? Um, You find this story in a book called Philemon, okay? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to try to find Philemon. I'm going to warn you in advance, it's going to be hard for you to do. It's going to be toward the back of your Bible. Turn about four or five or six books uh, toward the front of your Bible from the back. And it's one page. Philemon is not even, it's just one chapter. Okay, so I'm not even going to reference chapters today. I'm just going to say Philemon and the verse, and that's really all we have. It's just a real tiny little letter. Um, It's called the book of Philemon. Um, To show you the table of contents, we're familiar with Colossians. That's where we've been based out of this whole time. And then, you know, coming down toward the end, let's see how many, one, two, three, four. 10, turn 10 pages, 10 books back between Titus and Hebrews and you will find the book of Philemon. This is where we discover the story of Onesimus as Paul writes in Philemon verse 9, it, it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Paul says, Onesimus has become so important to me that he's like a son to me. What we know about Paul is whenever he would lead someone to Christ, he would, he would then begin to refer to them as his son in the faith. Uh, I grew up at the First Church of Christ in Florence, Kentucky. My pastor was L.D. Campbell, and I've been out with him in social settings. I've been with him at, at preacher gatherings and things where he's introduced me, and he said, this is Brett, this is my son in the faith. Um, it's a term of endearment. It's just this, you know, this very special I love this person, I, I'm proud of this person, 
And Onesimus gets that designation from the Apostle Paul. Then you come to verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Philemon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Onesimus was, was useless. He was a deadbeat. Um, I might even use the word loser in reference to Onesimus. He just wasn't very helpful at all. But now, Philemon, he's, become, he's begun a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is changing his life. And he has gone from useless to useful. And it's here that the name of uh, Onesimus really becomes important to us. And, and it's because the name Onesimus means useful. That's what his name means. Useful. So what Paul's doing is he's got a, play, a word play going on. And he says useful was useless, but now he is useful. Uh, useful is living up to his name. We're talking here about transformation. And when Jesus comes into your life, how he can change everything about your life when we come to faith. Uh, what we're talking about here is purpose. And Onesimus is going to discover a life of purpose. So when you think of the name Onesimus, the word that I would want you to associate with the word Onesimus is the word purpose. The story of Onesimus is really the story of three intersecting lives. And these lives come together around some decisions that Onesimus makes and uh, they are going to discover that when you give your life to Jesus and you say yes to following him, he will be calling you to some purposes in your life. We're going to look at three conversations this morning. Um, we all want to live lives that matter. I think that that's just a given. And we all want lives that have significance and we want lives that have some meaning to them. But for many of us from time to time, or maybe that time for you is right now. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you're like, Brett, I have no idea what my life is about. I have no idea what I'm being called to. But you're talking about purpose. I don't know what my purpose is. Um, you may find that a confusing thing for you this morning. Your life may have been all about work, you know, and you, you enjoyed getting up and going to that job. And for whatever reason, that job, you don't have that job anymore. And, and you're just, you're, you're, it's kind of left a void in your life and you're trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? What's my purpose now? And it's, or it's possible that your life revolved around some kind of relationship and now you're not in that relationship and you're asking yourself, well, what's my purpose now? Purpose. Let's go back to the life of Onesimus and think about what we already know about him. He has come to this new life in Christ and Paul has helped him to discover Jesus and he's moved from useless to useful. And you wonder, what exactly would that look like in the life of Onesimus? What's he doing that you would describe his life as a life of purpose? To answer that, you would need to start with the Apostle Paul and see what he's doing. From the moment Paul gets converted, I mean, Paul basically grows up in Judaism, and then he has this conversion experience. From the time he's converted, he begins this process of trying to evangelize the world. I mean, if there's somebody that doesn't know who Jesus is, Paul's going to try to help them understand who Jesus is. It's just, it's what he's about. He is about telling people about the risen Messiah. And he wanted to take that message as far as he possibly could in his known world. So he's been planting churches all over the place. There are churches all around the Mediterranean rim that, that Paul has planted. And as you look at a map of his missionary journeys, it's, it's kind of mind boggling when you start to think about Paul went to that city, probably didn't know anybody, evangelized, went up to complete strangers, told them about Jesus, converted them to Jesus, 
did that enough times that he could establish a church in that city and then left them. Then he went to another city and did the same thing. And he made three trips where that's all he did. I mean, it just, it boggles your mind to think about what, how Paul established all these churches. Um, but you have to remember that these are first-generation Christians, and these are people that are trying to figure out what it means to leave whatever gods they served or whatever faith they had behind and embrace this new thing called Christianity and to do this new thing that they call following Jesus. And so these churches are struggling. They're struggling for uh, quite a few reasons. Sometimes it was a leadership issue. Sometimes it would have been a, a relationship issue where there were some things going on in the church. Once in a while it was a theological issue. Uh, many times it was because the churches were coming under pretty heavy persecution and they were paying quite a price for existing as a church. Um, and Paul would want to help these churches. He would want to assist them and encourage them and go visit with them. But he can't because he's under house arrest. His right hand is at all times chained to a Roman centurion. Okay? Everywhere he goes, he is chained to, a, chained to a Roman guard, and he can't leave the house, he can't go meet with other Christians, he can't go see other churches, um, and he can't encourage anybody in person. He's very, very limited. So just knowing what you know about Paul and how you know, type A and really a go-getter kind of person, just knowing what you know about Paul, to be under house arrest would have driven him bonkers, right? Like it would just, I mean, it would, it would annoy us that we were arrested. I don't think that was the problem for Paul. The problem for Paul was he couldn't do what he felt like he was really being called to do. And um, he, he wants to help people get to know Jesus better. And then along comes this guy named Onesimus. And he runs into Paul, and somehow Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus, and so begins the transformation of the person of Onesimus, the name which means useful, which Paul says he's been useless and now he's become useful again. And I imagine that Onesimus started to ask, what can I do? I mean, Paul, you're in prison. You've led me to Jesus. I've got this new life in Christ. What, what can I do? What, what can I do for you? What can I do for Christ? How can I be of use to you? And you just kind of surmise that Onesimus began to run errands for Paul. You just kind of Start, you know, if you close your eyes and just kind of imagine for a minute what it would look like in first century Rome for this, this person to meet Paul and become a Christian and realize that Paul's in prison. And now, you know, if I want to serve him, what can I do? Maybe he, he runs out into town and brings back food. Maybe he carries messages to people. He probably saw Christians. He probably uh, carried some notes to churches. Um, you know, he could do an awful lot of things. It's not hard to imagine that Onesimus became very, very useful to Paul in a very short period of time. One might even use the word indispensable when, when you talk about Onesimus. How about all this from the perspective of Onesimus? What does his life of purpose look like? His life up until Paul... Uh, meets him is fairly aimless but once he comes to faith in jesus his life is dramatically changed he's he's, he's not going to be the same after he runs into christ which should be the case for all of us and after hanging out with paul you know here he is hanging out with paul paul's a kingpin in this movement he's like you know one of the big players and what an opportunity for onesimus and it is and he sees what paul's doing and how it's radically transforming the lives of the people that come into contact 
with Paul all across the Mediterranean world. It had to be exciting for Onesimus. It had to be, you know, his, his eyes every day just had to be wide open to all the things that he was seeing and how excited he must have been. And now his life has purpose. And then we come to a point in the story that is shocking. Paul writes to Philemon, and he says this in verse 12. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Okay, so what's going on? Here you are, you're under house arrest, you can't leave your house, you need this guy. Paul, what are you doing? You're sending him back? What do you mean I'm sending him back to you? What kind of relationship exists between Philemon and Onesimus? And it is here that I have, I just, I let you know that I have omitted a couple of really important details to the story. Because I have neglected to tell you one of the most important relational dynamics of everything that's going on between Onesimus and Philemon. Philemon doesn't just know Onesimus, Philemon owns Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave, and he has run away. And he has abandoned Philemon. So you ask yourself, so Brett, what is Onesimus doing in Rome? Well, Philemon has run away. They, they pretty much think that he took something that belonged to Philemon of worth. He, you know, how, do, how does a slave get from Colossae across that water all the way up to Rome? And what's he doing in Rome? He's, he's likely stolen some money or stolen something from Philemon to fund his trip. He's smart enough to know that if I can get to Rome, there are lots of slaves and former slaves in Rome, and I can get there and I can just blend in and no one will ever know, and I'll, I can have my own life. And so he runs all the way up to Rome to blend in, except that now he has run into the Apostle Paul, and Paul has led him to Jesus, and now he's discovered this purpose for his life, and he has become useful. And he has a life that means something. For once in his life, it means something. But all the while, there's a voice in the back of his head that says, Onesimus, you know what you did is not right. You know you've got to make this right. There's a guy back there that you stole from, you've wronged him, and Jesus is working on Onesimus to do the right thing. And Onesimus realizes that he's going to have to go back and fix this broken relationship. So Onesimus gets on a ship, he heads back to Colossae to stand face to face with Philemon. Can you imagine what that looked like? A little knock on the door, and Philemon opens the door, and there's this slave that has run away from him. Hey! It's me! Good to see you! What's up? You know? Can you, I mean, just think about He's run away, and you've probably all but forgotten about him, except you remember that he took something from you. And now he shows back, he has the gall to show back up at your doorstep. And Onesimus discovers that when you say yes to Christ and you begin to follow him, you begin to orient your life around some purposes of Jesus. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to lead you into healthy relationships it's clear from listening to what jesus said that healthy relationships are important to him onesimus is going to have 
this very important role as a part of this very important movement, movement, but Jesus wants him to take care of this relationship. So purpose one for us today is pursuing healthy relationships. If you consider yourself a Jesus follower, and I consider myself a Jesus follower, then Jesus is going to encourage us in this area of healthy relationships. And I just wonder this morning, is there a relationship that you have that is broken? Is there an Onesimus and Philemon thing? I don't mean that somebody owns you. I don't mean a servant-slave kind of deal, um, uh, owner-slave thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just, is there a rift? Is there a, a chasm? And, and is there anything that you could do to fix that? Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes it's on somebody else. Sometimes, you know, they've got to kind of come to their senses a little bit, and they've, they've got to um, be a little more open to you. But, if, but where you're concerned, is there anything that you could do to make your relationship better? Maybe you said some things recently, and, and you know, you were joking, but they didn't take it as a joke. And they were offended, and it's been a week, and they haven't really talked to you, and you know that probably what you said was offensive, but you don't quite know how to, maybe you just got to go and say, hey, listen, I was just joking, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean it the way you took it, and can we fix this? Maybe somebody, you borrowed something from somebody, maybe it was money, maybe you borrowed some money, and it's been a while, and you never paid it back, and now it's awkward, and... Um, you know, Jesus is whispering in your ear, you really need to do something about that, and it's just going to be awkward. Jesus calls us to healthy relationships. But relationships do not always mean broken relationships, right? I mean, um, it's not always about reconciliation. Sometimes it's about something else. Sometimes it's about attention. Sometimes it's about the attention that we give relationships. You have a job, and it's very demanding, and it takes a lot of your time, and you're spending a lot of time at work, and you're starting to hear some things repeated at home uh, that, that aren't good, like, I miss daddy. When's daddy going to come home? What, daddy's always at work, and you know that you've got to fix something there. Sometimes pursuing healthy relationships means reorganizing things just a little bit. Sometimes it means recognizing that God has placed a few relationships in my life that have to be elevated, and I've got to give special attention to those. I have lots of relationships, but these relationships are special, and it's my job to make sure that they're good. Sometimes it's about reconciling broken relationships. Sometimes it's about giving attention to a relationship that's, that's in trouble. Sometimes it's just about drawing a boundary. You know, you... Uh, you know as well as I do that once in a while relationships can develop that just aren't good for us to be in. And things at home aren't awful, but they're not great. And you wouldn't say that there's great chemistry at home. You don't talk much anymore. Intimacy has waned and fighting has increased. And you go to the office and she walks in. And she says, is there anything I can do for you today? And you talk and you sense of chemistry and it's fun and then one day the suggestion is hey why don't we go grab lunch sometimes pursuing a healthy relationship is saying you know what i need to put a boundary around this relationship and there are certain things that are going to have to be off limits i can't do that because i've got to protect what i've got at home i've got to protect what's going on there and and this relationship could endanger some other more important relationships so purpose one is just 
healthy relationships. To his credit, Onesimus obeys the voice of the Lord. And he gets on a ship and he heads back to the man from whom he fled and from the man he stole. And just let me ask you, how do you think that's going to go? Just in your imagination, if you're Philemon and this guy shows up, what's your response going to be? Probably not good. The door opens and surprise at your runaway slave. How's Philemon going to respond? Are you worried about Onesimus? Paul is. Paul gives Philemon some specific instructions on how he wants Onesimus received. So let's go back to Philemon uh, verse 15. Perhaps the reason, he's writing this to the slave owner, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. In other words, Philemon, perhaps this has happened so that you would not just welcome him back as a slave, but that, that you, you would welcome him back as a family member. That he would, you know, perhaps this, is a, this has happened so that you guys can, can form a different special bond now. Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If you value our relationship as friends, then welcome Onesimus the way you would welcome me. You know, you can hear Philemon saying, Paul, I know you, 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 you realize you're asking for a lot, right? You, you realize that what you're asking me to do is, is a big thing. And Paul would say, I'm not done yet. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. What's he mean there? Some benefit from you in the Lord. The name Onesimus, we said it means useful. It can also be uh, translated useful, profitable, or beneficial. And some scholars think that as Paul writes this, what he's really saying is, Philemon, when Onesimus shows up, don't welcome him as a slave. Welcome him like family. And if you value me, welcome him the way you would welcome me. And when you welcome him, I want you to give him his freedom and then send him back to me because he is useful to me in what I'm trying to do and the work that I'm trying to do. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if you're a slave owner in first century uh, Mediterranean world, that is a huge request. Huge. Understand that in first century culture, this is just not something that a wealthy slave owner would have done. Not even a Christian one. And you're like, Brett, Christian slave owner sounds like a contradiction in terms. In the world they lived in, it was very natural. Okay, not saying it was right. I'm just saying that in their culture, this is the way they did it. And, and Philemon is a Christian, and he owns this slave. And, and, you know, Paul's basically saying, I want you to welcome him back. And Philemon could very easily say, so, so what you expect is that he just waltzes back in, and I act like nothing happened? I act like he didn't steal from me? Paul, you want me to treat him like family? This guy ticked me off. He stole from me. He took advantage of me. He made a fool of me. Can you imagine Philemon out with his friends, maybe some wealthy friends who also hold slaves. And one of them looks at Philemon and says, hey, that's slave Onesimus. Wasn't that his name, Onesimus? And Philemon goes, yeah, his name was Onesimus. Yeah, did you ever track him down? Well, in fact, uh, yeah, in fact, he came back to me. He did? Uh, yeah. Boy, did you, did you let him have it? Um, yeah, I, I let him have it. I let him have his freedom. 
You what? I mean, it would have been unheard of for a slave owner. It, it, it would have, the face he would have lost in front of his friends by doing this would, would have been massive. This conversation would just simply would not have happened in first century Rome. This was not normal. What Paul is asking here is counter-cultural. That's the phrase that I want you to lock on to. And that's the second purpose. That's the second purpose when you come to Christ, is living counterculturally. When we say yes to Jesus, there are going to be times when he asks us to live counterculturally. Now, when you first hear that phrase, you think maybe something like, man, I, yeah, I could live counterculturally. That sounds cool. You know, freeing slaves and living counterculturally. It sounds edgy. It sounds hip. It sounds gritty. I like that. Rebellious. Problem is, Living counterculturally for Jesus in 2019 really doesn't feel like any of those things. It can feel weird. It can feel lame. It, it can feel judgmental at times. What, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, so let's say that there, there's this young lady, and she goes to church, and she's in the youth group at her church. And she went to a conference, and they talked at the conference about you know, modesty and how, what you sh how you show your body and how much of your body you show. And um, she's read her Bible some, and she's determined that Jesus would have her cover a little bit more of herself than most people do today. And she's out with her little girlfriends that they're, they're at a store, and they run up to this, you know, this rounder of clothes, and there are these shirts on there, and these girls are all pulling them off. Oh, isn't this so cute? Isn't this so cute? We're going to get these. We're going to wear these. And she's looking at the shirt. And she's thinking to herself, I, I, Jesus will not let me, I, I cannot wear that shirt. And they're like, we're all going to get them. Come on, let's all get them. And they all make their way to the counter, and she does not have one of those shirts in her hands. And they look at her like, come on. And she says, no, you don't understand. I, I can't wear that. Oh, you old fuddy-duddy. I don't think they use that word today, do they? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't, I'm, I don't live in that world. I don't know what 15-year-old girls say to each other. You're weird. You're weird. Come on. Be like the rest. Come on, don't be like that. Come on, that'll be fun. We'll wear these to school. We'll all look the same. No, I, I, I can't. Or it's a... It's a guy, and he's out with his best friend and his best friend's birthday, and they go out to a bar to celebrate, and the, this guy's a Christian, and he's just going to have one beer, and, you know, nothing wrong with one beer. He's just going to sit there and nurse this beer and celebrate with his friend, but meanwhile, the friend is having more and more and more. Pretty soon, it's getting out of control. Come on, have another one. No, I'm good. I'm just going to have the one. No, come on. It's my birthday. Come on. No. No. I'm just, just going to have the one. I don't want to overdo it. That's not what I want to do. I, I'm, I love you. I want to be here with you. I want to celebrate with you. But just let, me, just let me have the one. Oh, you're so lame. Why don't you celebrate with me? And pretty soon, you, you find yourself trying to live counterculturally, paying a price. Or you're a couple. And he's from out of town, and he's going to be moving to your town, and you're going to be getting married. He's going to work in your town. And you have a choice to make. 
you're Christians, you've decided to live your life for Christ, um, you're both going to be in the same town, all your friends suggest, hey, why don't you just live together, it'll be easier, you can practice being married, but you've decided you're going to wait, you're going to do this the right way, we're not going to live together, we're not going to move in. And your friends start putting pressure on you, and you know, it'll just be way easier, you'll save more money, you can get this apartment, it's really cool, you don't have to do all that. And you say, no, we, we've decided not to do it that way. We just have decided we're going to wait and, 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 you know, they push back and talk about how much money you could save and how much easier it would be and how much better it'll be. You can practice being married and, you know, nobody does it the way you're doing it. It's weird. And it's lame. And oh, by the way, I lived with my girlfriend. What does that make you think about me? And now it sounds judgmental. And now you're trying to live your life for Christ, and you're not saying anything to anybody else about how they live, but they interpret by the way you live, you're judging me. Well, this person never said anything about how they were living. This person's all he's talking about is how he's going to live. But when you live your life for Christ and you're trying to live your life counterculturally, there are going to be times that it looks like you're judging somebody else. You're going to be misunderstood. So here's the question this morning. Where is Jesus asking you to live counterculturally? Is there an area in your life where you're just swimming downstream and it's way too easy to just go with the flow? Is there a place, and maybe there isn't, more than likely there is, a place where Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to put your stake in the ground right here on this. I don't want you doing that. I know everybody else does that. I don't want you doing that. I'm calling you against the grain. I'm calling you against the flow. I'm calling you to live counterculturally. These three lives converge. Onesimus, the runaway slave, when he learns of his purpose of pursuing healthy relationships, Philemon learns of his purpose of living counterculturally. What about Paul? What do we learn from him? Well, I think we first have to recognize the way that Paul is handling all of this with Onesimus as he sends him back to Philemon. This is a struggle for Paul. It's hard for him. Verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. Philemon, I'd love to have him here. I'm limited here, and Onesimus has become so useful to me. I need him here, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent, and I'm a I wanted to ask your permission. Instead, Paul could have muscled up, and he could have said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm the church starter. I'm the one who evangelizes. I'm this preaching machine. I deserve to have him with me. Don't tell me no. Don't you know what I'm doing? Don't you know how hard I work? I need him, and it's really important, so I hope you understand I'm just going to keep him with me. That's what Paul could have done. I'll take that a step further. If it were me, I could very easily see myself rationalizing. I could see myself making excuses and giving all the reasons why, for my side, Onesimus needed to stay with me. That's not what Paul does. He sacrifices his desires for the sake of Philemon and Onesimus and for the sake of their relationship. But he doesn't stop there. He takes it even deeper than that. Look at the second part of verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, 
charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I think that, you know, I told you that he's chained to a Roman guard. Uh, his right hand is chained. Paul didn't see well anyway as he got older, you know, like m many of us. We just need glasses, and he just, he just didn't see well. Um, and he likely was dictating this as he was saying all this. Somebody's probably writing it down. But there's a point that he gets to where it's so important, he takes the pen out of somebody's hand, and he writes that himself. And he says, this is so important, I want you to understand that, that I'll take care of it. Purpose number three, we find Paul, when you come to Jesus, when you follow Jesus, one of the purposes is he's going to ask you to sacrifice. He's going to ask you to put other people first. And even in the midst of all this, even though what he really wants is to keep Onesimus with him, he embodies this idea of living sacrificially it was a sacrifice for Paul to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Any Jesus follower in the room of any maturity at all should not be surprised by this because at his core, Jesus is all about sacrifice. Paul wrote this about Jesus in Philippians. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, the way you talk to one another, the way you relate to one another, the way you treat each other, treat each other like Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, and I left the word death out, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The way you treat each other, the way you talk to one another, the way you relate to each other, you treat each other like Jesus. He was God himself, but he didn't use that for his own advantage. He lowered himself. And you think about it. If you were God, and you were going to send your son to the world, how would you do that? Would you send him as a king? Would, would he have a throne? You would want to make sure he had plenty of resources. You would want to make sure that everything was paved for him. Everything was good for him. He didn't have to struggle. He would be treated well. In fact, he would be looked up to, right? That's what I would want to do if it was my son. I'd want to set him up. I'd want to make sure he had everything he needed. That's not what happened to Jesus. He's born in a manger. Born into poverty. He will grow up and he will be crucified on a cross. He's going to be murdered. Jesus sacrificed everything for us. This is at the core of the Christian faith. And Jesus lived it. Sacrifice others first. Paul lived it. Now, what I, it's not what I want, but it's what you guys need. I want to keep Onesimus with me, but Onesimus needs to come back to you because this needs to be taken care of. Following Jesus means embracing a life of sacrifice. You don't see much sacrifice these days. You don't see much sacrifice these days. Unless you hang out here. If you hang out here, you see sacrifice. I've watched you write checks for things that nobody else knew. I've watched things get covered around here. 
I've seen people walk in on a Tuesday afternoon after they've been to the grocery store with their arms full of groceries. They put them up on the counter for Cheryl and they say, hey, I was at the grocery store getting some stuff for our family and I just thought that maybe the church could, could use this to give away to some people. That happens all the time. People come in and they write a check. Hey, I wasn't at church Sunday, but I want to make sure this gets in the offering. People... We just sent a bunch of kids to Ireland. There's no doubt in my mind that a bunch of you wrote checks to make, make it possible for some of those kids to go to Ireland. We had a bake sale, and some of you bought things that you have no business eating. <laughs> right? Right? It's like, I really shouldn't be buying this, but I'll pay $60 for this pie. Here you go. And you were happy to do it. People come in here and work on our building and mow our grass and... And, I mean, it's hot outside. We got guys out here mowing grass, bugs everywhere, sun beating down when it's not raining. <laughs> Trying to make sure that this place looks as good as it can look. All of it sacrificial. You may not see it all over the world, but if you come here, you see it. You see people who've come to Christ and they know how to sacrifice. Others first. Brett, how does the story end? <laughs> Onesimus gets on a boat. He heads back home. Going to Colossae. Going to go talk to Philemon. But what happens? How does Philemon respond? We don't know. <laughs> We have some clues from church history and tradition. Ignatius was a second-generation uh, second church leader and a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. Ignatius would come to faith at a very early age, and it would result in eventually Ignatius becomes the bishop of the church at Antioch in Syria. And history says that he was traveling to Rome under military guard they were taking him from Colossae back to Rome because they were going to kill him. One of the things that they used to do is they would fill Colosseums back in the day in Rome. They would fill the Colosseum full of people. They would turn loose all these lions and vicious animals, tigers, all different, all different manner of animal. Um, I mean, you just should read some of what happened back in that time. They would take Christians or take thieves or take you know criminals or whoever and just throw them out into the middle of all these beasts and people they would watch that for sport and that is what was going to happen to ignatius and as they left Colossae and they headed back uh, i'm sorry as they left syria and they headed back toward rome a group from ephesus a group from the church at ephesus came to meet ignatius and pray over him and encourage him and to just be with him for just a few moments to let him know that he was not alone just before his death. And so history tells us that Ignatius was so moved by what happened to him that he sat down and he wrote a letter to this congregation, and the letter has been preserved for us through history. And I want to read to you a part of the letter from Ignatius to the church at Ephesus. In God's name, therefore, I received your large congregation in the person of Onesimus. What he means is I, I received Onesimus' you know, members of his congregation. 
your bishop in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. My prayer is that you should love him in the spirit of Jesus Christ and all be like him. Blessed is he who let you have such a bishop. History tells us the story of Onesimus, a slave who robbed his master and ran away. His life transformed. He goes from useless to useful. He goes home to make things right. It seems that Philemon has welcomed him as a brother because eventually Onesimus becomes the bishop at the church at Ephesus. Now, if you take Jesus out of the story, all you have in the story is a runaway slave who goes to another city, who meets someone who is a friend of that slave, and he returns to his master. That's all you get. But because of Jesus and what he did in the life of Onesimus, Jesus transformed him. And this becomes a completely different story with Onesimus assuming the role of the bishop at the church at Ephesus. A man, Ignatius said, whose love is beyond words. We all want lives of significance. When you pursue the purpose of God, you will discover that life of significance. Living your life for Jesus is the wisest way you can invest your life. Living your life for Jesus is the way that your life can have the most impact. Because that's where it gets its purpose. That's where it gets its significance. It's where it gets its drive and its fuel. It's where your wisdom comes from. It's where everything good in relationship comes from. It comes from Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads. Let me pray over you. Father, I don't know what kind of shape we walked into the room this morning. Some may be good. Some may be not so good. Some are looking for their purpose. Some of them, I'm talking about purpose, and they're frustrated because they've been waiting on you to show it to them. I pray, Father, that you would help those people to understand what it is you're calling them to. And I pray, Father, when they see it and they sense it, they will have the courage to step into it because, Lord, sometimes the things you call us to are scary. And they look big, and they look like things we can't do. And Father, no doubt somebody has walked in here this morning, and it's not about them not knowing what their purpose is. They know what it is. They just don't want to do it. They're afraid. It's going to cost them something. It's new and different. They're afraid of being made a fool. Father, I pray that you would help them to push through every excuse they might offer to you and embrace that thing that you've put in front of them. Because it is only there that they're going to find the kind of relationship with you that they so desperately want. So Father, this morning, I just pray for all of us. We're all trying to follow you. We're all trying to take our cues from you and be the kind of Christian you want us to be. Help us, Father, to live our life in such a way that we're not judgmental. We're not angry. We're not hateful. Help us to be vessels of grace, mercy, freedom, and acceptance. Lord, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus.